All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 26 as we continue our sermon series called My Life is Not My Own. I believe it's on page 1131 if you're using one of our big Bibles. And while you're turning there, um, are John and Lindsay both over there? Um, I didn't tell them I was going to do this, which is what makes it even more fun. Um, but I don't know if y'all have seen what is happening in our education annex, the, the transformation that is taking place, uh, largely for be able to be used by the youth. Um, but the, it's like our best building now, and uh, it's amazing. And I just wanted to say thank you guys for all your hard work and all the volunteers you've been uh, wrestling up to do that. It's just there have been injuries. I mean, this has been legit. So let's just praise the Lord for this hard work. Amazing, amazing blessing. Thank you, guys. Um, this is John 4, 1 through 26. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But... The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will not worship the Father 
when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there's no doubt in my mind that that flash of light, the light going out when I was speaking those words of Christ is no coincidence. Thank you. Thank you that the one who has come to give the full revelation of who you are is the Lord Jesus. And would you um, be with us now, Father? Uh, Would you help us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus in this passage, see our desperate need for him and the free gift that he is to us from you. Holy Spirit, would you uh, work in us, uh, do some good heart work in each of us this morning that we might uh, live for our King even more uh, now than we were when we walked in here this morning. Would you liberate us from the futile attempts to find life and joy and satisfaction and things that just weren't designed to give those to us. Would you take our hearts off our idols and focus them back on our Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And if there are non-believers among us, Lord, would you draw them to yourself today with that sweet offer of living water. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, On Thursday of this past week, I got to see something I had never seen before. I don't know that I'll ever see it again, but it was amazing. Um, I was in this room, this very room, with one of our elders um, who shall not remain nameless. It was Brian Moore. Um, Brian, if you're here, I'm sorry I didn't ask you about this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, So Brian and I were in this room, and all of a sudden we realized there was a gecko on the steps. Okay? Now, I've seen a gecko before. That's not the, the good part. Uh, so we see this gecko. I'm sorry, we barely see this gecko because it was camouflaged because they can do that. And we were remarking, hey, there's, there's a gecko. And I said to Brian, you know, it's unfortunate that the gecko is in here because um, he's going to die. And I, I, I let him know that, you know, we often find little dead critters in here. They, they come in here and then they can't get back out and they die. And so uh, Brian got up and started walking towards the steps. And then ensued the most incredible pursuit I've seen in a long time. Brian, full-grown man, was jumping through the air, grasping at this little gecko, which was faster than him. So then he would have to jump over here and grasp over here. And this went on for, I think, like three hours in my mind. But it was actually probably about eight seconds. But either way, he worked so hard. And then he finally got his hands around that little guy. And walked over to the door, opened the door, and let him go free. And that's good because, uh, just like in your home every once in a while you find the dead, hard, dried carcass of a lizard or whatever, that happens here too. In fact, uh, it's not uncommon for these creatures to kind of come in here and get stuck. Right? We've had lizards, obviously we've had geckos, we've had frogs that we found in here. Uh, I chased a bat around this room one time, don't recommend that. Um... And uh, one time we actually saw a giant snake in here, okay, never found it, 
So uh, heads up. Um, I know you wish I was kidding. These these things, you know, they come in here and they don't they don't understand that once they're in here, now they're in a place uh, where number one they're trapped, and number two they're not going to be able to get what they need to survive. They come in here, whatever they're thinking. I don't pretend to know what a gecko thinks, but they come in here, and pretty soon now they're in a place where what they need to live and to thrive is not there. Uh, these little creatures uh, come in here, and then they're 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 going to die unless unless there's somebody like Brian who will chase them down and take them to a place where the things that they need actually exist. You know, so last week we started this new sermon series, My Life is Not My Own. That's our thought or theme for the fall. And uh, it's, it's a powerful thing that the Bible teaches us, that we should live as if our lives are not our own, but our lives belong to God. We looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, where Paul talks about how the love of Christ controls us, really restrains what's wrong in us so that the good part of us, the new creation part of us can go free. And we talked about how he said in that passage that Jesus died for us, but not just so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God fully and permanently through faith, but also so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but rather we would live for him. The one who has died for us and was raised, has paid for our sins so that we can be declared righteous. And so we we were we're thinking about all fall. What does it look like to shift from sort of the natural self-centered life and the life that our society tells us to live? Your life is your own. That's the message of our culture, our society. What does it look like to shift from that to a Christ-centered life? To not live for ourselves, but, but to live for him who died and was raised for us. And a big part of living for Christ is understanding the incredibly important role of worship in a Christ-centered life. And and actually the freeing power of worship uh, in a Christ-centered life. It's good news that our lives are not our own. And um, we're going to be talking this morning about worship and how Christ-centered worship is the means through which God gives us those things that we know that we need, that we feel that we need. It's, it's through worship and our growing relationship with Him that all those thirsts and hungers that we need are met. That only He can meet them, and so He does. And He does that largely through Worship. We, like those little creatures, go places looking for things we need, but those things aren't there. And Jesus today is going to tell us to get our eyes on the one who has all that we need, all our souls thirst for. So Christ-centered worship, the means through which God satisfies our souls. I want to talk about three things. Uh, worship when life is your own. So what, what is our worship life like if we just do what we want, if we just kind of live for ourselves like society teaches us to? Number two, we'll talk about worship when life is not your own. We'll see Jesus redirect the worship of this woman at the well. Very, very beautiful. Um, And then third, Christ-centered worship as a way of life. Okay, Worship when your life is your own. Worship when your life is not your own. And Christ-centered worship as a way of life. Uh, Let's talk about 
Worship when your life is your own. And simply put, this is uh, one of the hardest things for us to bite down on, especially in our society. But the reality is, everybody worships. It's like that David Foster Wallace quote that Stephen read. We are by nature worshipers. And now, I don't just mean Sunday morning worship or like your personal private devotions. I mean worship in the big, grand scheme of things in terms of like what we're living for. We as human beings, we naturally are going to worship something. We're naturally going to give something in this life or some things in this life a tremendous amount of worth. Okay, That's actually what worship means. It's to ascribe worth to something. Our English word worship comes from two old English words, worth-ship. So to worship something is to show it its worth-ship, to show it how worthy it is. And we do this by nature. We will uh, ascribe worth to things. But we, we, you know, we're different. Different people ascribe worth to different things. For example, in, in 2017, uh, somebody bought a Leonardo da Vinci painting uh, called Salvatore Mundi for $460 million. It's the largest sale of a painting in the history of the world. Somebody thought that painting was worth, they would ascribe the worth of $460 million to that painting. Now, I wouldn't. I'm sure it's awesome. But I wouldn't. But I would ascribe, and I do ascribe worth to things that are not God. And so do you. This is part of what the fall did to us and why we need a redeemer, we need a rescuer, because we will, by nature, it's very easy, we will begin to ascribe worth to things that can't fulfill our desires, can't can't satisfy us, and really aren't worth as much as we are actually believing them to be. Um, Jeremiah 2.13, as we've heard this morning, uh, it says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's in the Old Testament, and so it's really both, the message is in both Old and New Testament, that that's what we do. We have this tendency to ascribe great worth to something other than God, to live for it, to assume that once we have it, we're going to be great, or to assume that if we lose it, everything's going to be over. We do this by nature, That David Foster Wallace quote is sharp because it hits home. Another thing he said there, if worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's really amazing that this non-religious man really had tapped into the human condition. That we continually place great worth on things that can't actually deliver what we think they will deliver. And sometimes we make great sacrifices to have those things. Um, it's, it's like we're, we're putting weight on something that can't hold the weight. These created things can't hold the weight that the Creator can. When you put, when you, when you put too much weight on something, what happens? It's going to let you down. Sometimes quickly. So at one time I was ironing. And um, our ironing board is not rated for a couple hundred pounds of Matt Ryman. So um, when I uh, was ironing, and at first everything was going really great. Uh, but then, I don't know what I would... For some reason, I, I put a lot of my weight on it to reach for something or whatever. And that thing 
uh, broke into a thousand pieces. It fell down. I fell down. The iron fell down. Something else I had on the ironing board fell down. Everything just went crashing down. It was early in the morning, so everybody was awakened uh, awkwardly and uncomfortably. And I was just like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Not emotionally, but I'm okay physically. Um, and it's all because I was foolishly placing so much weight on something not designed to hold my weight. So, words of wise, don't get on your ironing boards. I know they look like a surfboard, just don't do it. But we do do it. We do. We, you, me. We give so much worth to these things. And it could be any number of things. It could be success. That's, that's part of my idolatry struggle. Do you know that I, I think about being successful and I also think about... Even if I'm not successful, but people think I am, then I'll be happy. And it's really interesting how much you feel like a failure when you're worshiping success. So how about you? You know, John Calvin was right when he said the human heart is an idle factory. It's just in our nature to pump out all these things that we're going to start relying on. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's getting a promotion. Maybe it's a bigger house. Maybe it's a status thing. We begin to put all this worth on those things and we pursue them like crazy. And the thing is, if we get them, if we don't get those things, we're often desperate because we're not getting the one thing we think will make us happy. But when we do get them, we're happy maybe for a breath and then we're disappointed because the reality is it still didn't hold our weight. It still didn't fulfill our desires. Ravi Zechariah says, the loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced that which you thought would be would deliver the ultimate and it has just let you down. So maybe you can be honest and you can recognize that there's a list of things you tend to trust in, look to, rest in, hope for, long for, other than God, thinking that's what will fulfill me, that's what will satisfy me. So the bad news is you do that, I do that. The good news is Jesus comes to our rescue. So let's look at that. Let's watch him come to the rescue of this woman at the well. Let's talk about worship when life is not your own. What happens to our worship and our understanding of worship when we give our lives over to Christ? Because um, I love this passage because here we see Jesus rescuing somebody from their futile attempt to find satisfaction in something that wasn't ever designed to satisfy them. Uh, so notice, look at verse 13, just, just to kind of pick up on the story. Jesus is talking to this woman. He's asked her for water. She doesn't understand that. Why are you asking me for water? And he says he has this living water. And in, in, in verse 13 now, he's really going to get her attention. He's going to get her interested in this living water. It's, it's different than anything she's ever heard of. Look at 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now immediately, she's very likely still thinking that he's talking about actual water. But she's, she, he's piqued her interest. She's like, well, I want this water. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. So I'm not thirsty and I don't have to keep coming back. So I'm not thirsty and I don't have to be, keep coming back. Isn't that interesting? He's setting things up for her and for you and I to understand how it works. How is, will, will we ever be not thirsty and have to keep going back to something? Then look what he does. Verse 16. Now he's going to expose 
the thing that she's been worshiping, the thing where she's been ascribing a lot of worth and looking for her satisfaction, looking for her joy, looking for her fulfillment, looking for any number of things. 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, to be fair, in our society, like pointing out something like this is probably a little awkward. Why are you doing that, Jesus? Um, it was so great talking about water. Let's go back to that. But he's, he's at work here. She wants the idea, she likes that idea of water that will quench her thirst. Now he's going to point out her real thirst and how it's being unmet. And so he's pointing out to her that she seems to put a lot of stock in relationships with men. She's tried once, twice, three times, four times, five times. She's on her sixth round. And this is not a place, you know, to judge her because she's just like us. may not be relationships, but it's something else. But here's the king pointing this out, not to shame her, but to deliver her, to rescue her. You're putting all your worth in something that is not satisfying your soul. That's why you have to keep going back. You have to keep going back. You have to keep going back and you're still thirsty. And so then he goes on and he says in 21, and he's going to point her to him, to God. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She had asked about where to worship. And he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, don't get him wrong. Jesus is not saying God is out looking for, hey, I'm going to go looking for people worshiping in spirit and truth and then I'm going to gather them in. That's not what he's saying. God is seeking people. So that they can worship him in spirit and truth. Now, we could talk all day about what the scholars think Jesus means when he says worship in spirit and truth. Okay, I'm going I'm to give you one thing that I think fits. He's talking about, when he says that God is spirit, he's referring to the fact that God is spirit. God cannot be seen. Okay, we worship a God we cannot see. That's part of what's hard about living by faith, is we can't see God. We can't touch him. So God is spirit. But people who are going to worship him must worship in spirit. So according to his nature, according to the fact that we can't see him and truth, meaning we want to worship the invisible God according to what has been revealed about him. Does that make sense? We want to worship a God that's invisible according to what he's revealed about himself, according to the truth that he's given to us. Well, where's that truth? Then she gets all excited, right? She's like, look at verse uh, 25. She's like, yeah, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, guess what? And one of the things that we have to recognize here is that Jesus is showing himself here to this woman to be the full revelation of who God is. And it's not just here. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Paul in Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so here, 
is this woman and she's hearing that the one who's going to reveal all the truth that has yet to be revealed about God, the one who's going to come and give that full revelation is standing in front of her. And he's standing in front of us right now in the word of God. And what we're seeing then, thinking back to the living water, now it's probably clicking in her mind. Maybe it's clicking in your mind. Oh, so wait a second. The Messiah, the Christ, is the one who has this living water, not just water that satisfies me physically, but will satisfy the thirsts of my soul, the thirst that keeps sending me to these false gods that can't actually fulfill me, can't satisfy me. Here he is. He's the one who is the full revelation of God, and his revelation is that he is the fountain of living waters who is coming to those who are dying of thirst. That he is coming to the world. And that he is the one person we need and we get everything. We get him, we get everything. We get him, we get everything. Remember, like, I, one of the things I think uh, the younger generation is probably less familiar with is infomercials. Remember infomercials? So, young people... Um, your parents and people my age, we used to actually watch commercials that were an hour long, okay? So um, we're learning. But infomercials were these literally like half an hour show, hour show, where somebody's trying to sell you something, okay? That's, uh, the more I think about that, it's like, what were we doing? But we got drawn in because all of a sudden they were trying to sell something that was like, ooh, maybe I need that. Right? And it was like some sort of chopomatic for the kitchen or something. And the guy would be saying what it is. And the little, little crowd there that's paid to clap on cue is, is standing there. And they're sitting there. And the guy's saying, like, hey, this chopomatic, yeah, it'll top, chop your potatoes in one slice. Boom. He does it. Everybody says, oh, look at those potatoes. Those are chopped so good. Uh, and then he says, but that's not all. It can dice. Wham. Now they're diced. Oh, the di- oh but that's not all. It can cut ribbon curls. Woo, curly fries. Oh, my goodness. I got to have. Oh, but that's not all. It can do the spiral thing, too. And it's just like goes on and on and on and on. And pretty soon you're like, man, if I had that one thing, I would have everything I need for my kitchen. Woo, I got to get this thing. What is the number? If I had that one thing, I would have everything I need for my kitchen. If I had that one thing, I would have everything I need for my... If I had that one thing, I would have everything I need. This, friends, this is Jesus He's the one who reveals that if we have him, we have everything we need. And so these futile pursuits to get what we need elsewhere can die. And when they creep up again, we can, they can die again. I mean, let's say, uh, like me, success is a big deal. You want to see, you want to appear successful, right? It's, it matters to you too much. Well, guess what? In Christ, we have perfect success. We have his perfect righteousness, his perfect righteous record. He never did anything wrong. He did everything perfectly, and that's imputed to me. I have all the success I could ever ask for in Christ. Maybe uh, you worship security. You're always worried, and you're just always thinking you need more of this, or you need less of that, or you've got to do this. And, and, and in Christ, you have absolute security. Your whole eternity, if your faith is in Christ, is absolutely secure. Maybe it's status. You want a certain status at work or in, in this city or in the world or something and you're so wanting this, this status. And in Christ, you have this perfectly righteous status before the judge of all the universe. 
You get it all. We get it all. In Christ, if we have Christ, we have everything we need. Our problem is, once again, we keep turning away from this fountain of living waters and we turn to these broken cisterns that can't hold water. And so Christ is here in the Word, calling to you, calling to me, turn back to the fountain of living waters. Turn back to the one who has that living water that we're longing for. The one who can quench our thirsts. Because he has come to us, not only to die on the cross to pay for our sins, but also to satisfy our souls even now. He is the one single, solitary, satisfying thing. Repentance looks like realizing that you're putting worth on these other things, turning away from that and choosing to pursue Christ and to grow in your relationship with Christ and to be a full worshiper of Christ. And so thirdly, let's talk about Christ-centered worship as a way of life quickly. I just want to say a couple things. How do, we, how do we make this practical? Well, one of the things is to really understand that we worship, like the big picture worship is meant to be pictured in our coming together on Sunday mornings. If we want that real freedom of the Christ-centered life, if we want that real freedom of drinking deeply from the grace that God gives to us in Christ, corporate worship on Sunday mornings is absolutely important. Like we want to be here for ourselves, but also for one another. It's amazing what God does when we're gathered together in His presence, listening to His promises, and that's really important. And it's informative, too, because it teaches us, not only are we in God's presence when we're worshiping Him, but then there's patterns of worship, right? And we can take those patterns, and those very same patterns can be utilized in our day-to-day worship, our, uh, either in our family or in our personal worship, personal devotions. And the more that we are connecting with God in corporate worship and then day-to-day in personal private worship, the more that our whole lives end up being dominated by the worship of God and the freedom that comes from that and the soul-satisfying relationship that we are meant to have with God. So if we will let Jesus point out through the Holy Spirit, what are the things I'm worshiping? And then turn our hearts to him and commit ourselves to being together in corporate worship, to building your devotional life. We have, we're going to be having some stuff that will help you with that. And really learning to walk throughout the whole day, being a worshiper of God, adoring God with your thoughts, confessing your sins, reminding yourself of his uh, grace, preaching the gospel to yourself spending time in His Word, praying to Him. All these same things we do in corporate worship and in private worship, we can do throughout our day. And what happens is we end up spending our energy pursuing the one person that will actually cause us to rejoice and to be satisfied. You know, somewhere, there's a little gecko telling his friends, You know what, guys? I was in that big Costco-looking box thing and and I was stuck and I was going to die. But praise Brian. Um, (laughs) Here I am, free. And when you and I forsake the cisterns we've been digging... 
and turn back to the fountain of living waters more and more and more, we find ourselves telling our friends, hey guys, I was stuck given too much worth to something that could not satisfy my soul and praise Christ. Here I am. Drinking deeply of the living waters and feeling full. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, let it be so that we would drink deeply of the living waters through worship as a way of life, through worship on Sunday mornings, through worship in our families and in our private devotions. And would we keep drinking? Would we stand there with our mouths open? Forsaking these broken cisterns, worshiping things that cannot satisfy. Because we know that Jesus not only paid our debt, but now is delivering us from the very things that caused us to do all these sinful things. So forgive us for our sins, but also, Lord, give us grace to drink of the living water of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.